Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, where myself, Nick Hill, and my good friend and co-host, Daniel Foch, sit around and talk about real estate for about 40 minutes every Tuesday and Friday. How you doing, Dan? And what are we talking about today? Today, we're going to be talking about a lot of things. We got a mixed bag episode for our listeners today. And uh, before we start, my name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker and investor. Um, so we're going to be talking about a Knight Frank survey that puts real estate as the top wealth building tool for 2023, which I actually was surprised by, to be honest. We're going to be talking about the very controversial, apparently lately, 15-minute cities. Um, and we're going to be ta- talking about alternative streams of income for real estate, um, most notably making money off of your roof. Um, but before we get started, we're going to do this little haves and wants segment. Um, do you want to kick us off here on this, Nick? Yeah. So be sure to join us for a landlord.io seminar, which is next week, March 16th, where Dan and I'll be hopping on with the owners and creators of the wonderful app that we know and love to run through some deals. And we're going to get into a segment of the show later on where we have a nice juicy deal for you. Uh, a current have we want is a podcast listener who has a little private island for sale. Yes, you heard that correctly. A private island. It's five acres currently running as an Airbnb with a bunch of those really cool like dome tents on it. We're looking for either a 50-50 partner to run it or we'll possibly end up selling it. So if you're interested in something like that and you've always wanted to own a private island, it's not in the Bahamas, but it's not that bad either. It's here in Ontario. If you want more information on that, reach out. Uh, runs at a six cap, I believe, Dan. Yeah, six cap, which we verified on Lendlord.io's deal analyzer. And um, it's interesting. Like It's basically, it's kind of within that like, in quotes, Prince Edward County, um, Airbnb sphere. Uh, so like those, you know, really sexy tourist country for, for the staycationers. But it's actually technically, since it's an island outside of Prince Edward County's, um, <laughs> air, very, very rigid Airbnb rules. So interesting and, and just interesting context around, you know, how, how different things can be from, uh, local municipal governments from, you know, as soon as you cross a municipal border. So, um, we also have a grocer who's looking for three acre sites in small towns in Canada. So if you know of any of those, um, give us a shout. These are all coming from listeners, by the way. And if you have a have or a want, send us a message to the show. We'd love to help you fulfill your real estate needs. Um, I kind of hijacked the one for you, but I'm going to, I'm going to quickly do a review here. It says great show with an exclamation mark, five star review. I'm new to the business and living in Victoria, BC, and absolutely love this show. The hosts do an incredible job explaining and educating on a wide array of important topics within the real estate and mortgage world. Highly recommended podcast from Nicholas Hipperson. My second favorite Nick in the world, actually. Um, I and I personally love getting reviews from the other side of the country and just seeing where people are tuning in to listen to this podcast from. So please leave us a review and mention the city you're tuning in from. We love to see where we have listeners all over the country. I'm going to give a special shout out to Nicholas Hipperson because I actually know Nicholas. Nick, uh, we worked together years and years ago when I was living in Vancouver. We had a really cool underground restaurant and, uh, and a catering business. And, and Nick is an amazing, amazing chef. So thanks so much, Nick. Uh, appreciate you and miss you, buddy. Um, 
Let's keep moving here. I want to just quickly mention the meetups before we dive in. Uh, we are going out to Vancouver. We'll be there in a couple of weeks, so we'd love to see you while we're out there. We've got the Edmonton meetup happening. That's in a few weeks, March 23rd. And then the Calgary meetup happens the first Thursday of every month. And we're going to start to be doing these larger quarterly paneled um sessions and then and then the other ones will just be networking events so we'll be out in vancouver the first week of april to interview chip wilson if you want to meet up with us or if you you know if you have any ideas or want to show us some properties let us know and we'll try to accommodate but enough housekeeping dan let's dive in because we have got a lot of ground to cover notice that little pun right there yes um we are starting things off today on the east coast in Dartmouth, which is an urban community and former city located in the Halifax Region Municipality of Nova Scotia. Dartmouth is located in the eastern shore of the Halifax Harbor and has been nicknamed the City of Lakes because there's almost 30 lakes located within its boundaries. It's got a population of just less than 100,000 and attracts people with its fantastic amenities, reliable transportation, strong schooling system, and amazing home values making dartmouth an exceptional place to live now you're probably listening to that wondering okay well what's the average cost of a home in nova scotia well i have the answer for that dan would you like to read this answer here absolutely i'd love to thank you it's an honor and a privilege nick the the average price (laughs) uh, of a home in nova scotia is four hundred and twelve thousand canadian dollars despite a slight correction of one percent in 2022 the price is forecast to further increase by six percent in 2024 and exceed four hundred thirty two thousand canadian dollars so still pretty reasonable when you consider the national averages in the mid to high sixes and that is on the rise but you know what this segment's about it's the deal of the day so i had to go find a juicy one for us And I found a side-by-side up-down duplex, or sorry, a, uh, yeah, sorry, side-by-side up-down duplex for $275,000. I like it. Dan, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be making an, like a big gasp there or something Did I have a gasp cue there? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, (laughs) uh. It's, it's an interesting property. And I think like the, you know, the per unit cost is cool. So, okay. So there's two units up and down and then. It's two pins as well, right? So, so is it a four in total? I don't believe so. I'm believe, so why don't we read the description here and we'll get into the numbers because it does. I it's two bed, two bedroom, two bathroom on each side. It. So it says unbelievable investment opportunity near Central Dartmouth. Two units up and down, each with two bedrooms and one full bath. Downstairs is ready to rent and was just painted with a few renos such as flooring, new vanity, and light fixtures. The parking lot has. Plenty of space for three to four cars. Many possibilities available with purchase. Rent one unit, live in the other, or rent both units, or convert back to a s- original family home. Take advantage of the NS Assistance Down Payment Plan. It all starts with booking an appointment. Anyway, that's all the, the realtor call to action stuff at the end. I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I'm in an info stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... Okay, so we like the property. Now let's look at the rents from our friends at rentals.ca. As of March 2023, the average two-bedroom apartment in Halifax rented for $2,168, and that's up 14% compared to the previous year. This isn't like, you know, the upper echelon. So let's just dumb it down a bit and use 2000 per side, so 4K in total. Um, Dan, why don't you walk us through some of the metrics here because they look pretty good. Yeah, so I mean, you're looking at basically an 11.22% cap rate. 
um, exceptionally good, uh, 16.39% cash on cash return. And imagine if you were doing that Nova Scotia homeowners, uh, application program then, or for first time buyers application program, basically you could probably juice up that cash on cash return if you were doing it as a house hack, as an example, um, which we see a lot of people doing, you know, they'll buy a property. It says, it sounds like one of them needs work. So they'll buy a property. A lot of the contractors that listen to the show do this, live in one unit, rent out the other, spend a year chipping away at, you know, renovating that property go refi out the equity that they built in and then jump into another investment. So definitely a cool kind of more creative and, and really low barrier to entry with the cost there. Um, and we know that, you know, Halifax and Dartmouth are, are two areas that are growing exceptionally quickly. Some of the fastest in the country based on uh, recent data from Statistics Canada. So I, I'm pretty happy with the, um, you know, I, I like the deal, I guess I'll say, I'll say that. I like, I like the deal. I mean, what's not to like at a double digit cap rate? And I mean, again, you're, you know, I did a 70% uh, loan to value here. So 30% down your cash invested with everything after closing costs is, is just over 80,000. Your mortgage rate 6%. I even juiced up vacancy and put like some extra closing costs in there just because I was like, this deal's too good. But um, no, that that's it. A over an 11% cap rate. So they exist, folks. They are out there. Go find them. Now, on the topic of investing in real estate, this is a great segue into our next little segment here. Now, I just made a piece of content on this for Instagram, and I thought it'd be worth throwing into the show here. It is the survey results from 500 private bankers, wealth managers, and family offices globally that voted on the top opportunities for growing wealth in 2023. Here are the results brought to you by Daniel Foch. I want to say before I say this that I actually think the <laughs> words growing wealth are an important distinction in, in the methodology of this because anyway, uh, let me let me give you the data first. Real estate is number one at 46% said that that was the best. Tech, 33%. Equity markets, 28% said that was the best. 22% said volatility was the biggest wealth building opportunity, which is still something I'm mm. kind of confused on. And 15% said interest rates are the biggest wealth building opportunity. Um, but I think wealth, growing wealth is the interesting part. I think like, you know, tech is probably a, a, a higher velocity um, wealth creation, creating wealth maybe, but it's the grow, the, the long-term growth. I think that really, to me, that, that, the idea of growth to get rich slow is really probably what these 500 private bankers, wealth managers, and family offices are voting real estate as the number one tool. And I would agree with that, even though I'm, I do think there's a little bit of downside risk in the market. I still think this is a market where you can safely make investments in. And so long-term wealth building tool, real estate, we know is exceptionally good at that. Agreed. And we really got to pay attention, right? It's all in the wording. So this survey was conducted by global real estate conglomerate Knight Frank. The company analyzed the amount of times each word was mentioned within the response to the following question. What are the top opportunities for 2023 for your clients and their ability to create and grow wealth? Now, hey, I love it because I love real estate, but it's important to dig a little deeper. So who is Knight Frank? Well, Knight Frank LLP is an estate agency, residential commercial property consultancy founded in London by John Knight and Howard Frank and this guy that somehow got left out of the naming rights, William Rutley, in 1896. Poor Will. 
Uh, Knight and Frank formed together with its American affiliate Cressa, and they make up one of the world's largest property consultancies. Now, Knight Frank's global network has more than 488 offices across the globe and more than 20,000 people handle in excess of $817 billion worth of commercial agricultural and residential real estate annually. So it's safe to say that there's a, a healthy dose of bias potentially in this. Well, in I don't, where are you getting data. that? I don't see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's always like, you know, when you see the, the real estate boards and re- Canadian real estate companies being like, Oh yeah. Like I even think that that Halifax or Dartmouth statistic that you said about prices going up, which wouldn't surprise me if their prices grew by the end of the year at the rate of inflation, which is, you know, kind of like that 6% range. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of these come from the Royal Pages, the Remaxes, and, you know, not to dispute that, you know, they're doing hard work and gathering primary data and coming up with forecasts. Um, but, you know, there's a degree of optimism, probably because it helps them if that is true. And so it's almost like, what is that? What do they call that? <laughs> Are they calling that manifesting these days? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, and again, you know, out of those 500 very intelligent financial experts made up of family offices and bankers, et cetera, assuming they all have a vested interest in Knight Frank's real estate, again, it might skew things a little bit, but interesting nonetheless. For sure. Should we uh, start things off by talking about another controversial subject here, Yeah, why not? Let's get into it. Okay. The commute to work. Yeah. That's a good one, especially in Toronto. And, you know, like I put um, data out on on Twitter that uh, it's from SRRA, the Strategic uh, Research Alliance that basically covers um, Toronto office occupancy. And uh, they Toronto office occupancy is actually down. Um, so it's I think it's down from 43% to 42%. And the percentage is percent of pre-COVID occupancy. So pre-COVID was 100%. Now we're at 43, 42%. In the States, a lot of most major office markets are above 50%. They did kind of come back a little bit, but 50%. But the interesting part about this uh, data from, and this is from srraresearch.org. I'm kind of ad-libbing here, Nick. I apologize. We will get to your argument about uh, about tr- commuting times, but the average weekly is 42%, but the peak day is Wednesday. Uh, 54%. And you'll notice, you can notice if you're in the GTA, you notice the traffic is significantly worse on Wednesday than it is on a Monday, as an example, which is the slow day where 33% of pre-COVID occupancy. So you're seeing this hybrid work kind of taking the shape of people who are really electing to take their work from home days, probably on Mondays and Fridays. And so you don't see a lot of traffic on those days. But to get back to it, in a recent article from the Toronto Star, Toronto has the third longest average commute time via public transit in between the U.S. and Canadian cities in a new report. Toronto's average commute time is up 56 minutes this year, up to 56 minutes this year. Sorry, not up 56 minutes this year. Last year, it was 52 minutes. And that's despite only 6.75% of people in Toronto having a long commute trip of two hours or longer. So not a lot of people going from super far out. Like in, you know, in cities of New York, you see people commuting from all over the, the tri-state area, from Connecticut or what, there was a new article about it, like these super commuters that just came out. Anyway, the city falls just behind New York at 58 minutes and Chicago and Washington, D.C., which tie for second at 57 minutes. Is this one of those like cool... Like it's like the real estate bubble index where because we're on it, we're now like in quotes, a world-class city. (laughs) 
I mean, I guess. I mean, look, commuting is is commuting to work is something that millions of people do each day. Uh, even with the work from home, we still see it. And for some, it's a short drive. If you're lucky enough, maybe even a walk or a bike ride or public transport transportation. But for many of us, especially in larger urban areas across the country, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and especially the GTA, commuting takes up a ton of our time. So let's just look at some of these random commuting facts for Canadians, Dan. Yeah, for sure. I um I actually kind of like uh commuting, honestly. Like I like shutting off, like you know, having that time to like let your brain ramp up on the way to where work. Do I, where do you think down. I listen to podcasts? Yeah. Yeah. Um seventy four percent of commuters drove their vehicle to work. Another five point six percent made the trip as passengers. So that's crazy. I find that fascinating. Only, you know, the, we have a carpool lane here in, uh, in certain highways in the GTA and they're always so empty because no one drives with each other to work. Anyways, 12% of commuters used public transit for the largest portion of their commute. So maybe they drove to a bus stop or, or a train station, left the car there and took the public transportation. An impressive 880,000 Canadians walk to work. They must all be in Vancouver. And in 15-minute uh, cities, which we're going to talk about. <laughs> 201,000 Canadians cycled to work. 17.2% of Canadians whose commute took longer than 45 minutes. 29% of commuters left for work between 7 and 7.59 a.m., the most popular window for such trips. So you got to get out before 7 or, or just wait until like 9 o'clock at that point. And according to Statistics Canada, there were 2.8 million fewer commuters in 2021 than 2016 as the pandemic drove a shift towards remote work. So 2021 census data is going to be kind of weird for that reason. Very, very, yeah. Uh, And a million Canadians took a bus or train to work in 2021. Less than 1.2 million who took transit where the data was first collected in 1996 and almost 50% lower than it was in 2016. And nearly a third of Canadians want a commute of no more than 15 minutes. Interesting. Another 22% want to work entirely from home and nearly 40% want a hybrid model that blends in-person and remote work. And these are all important considerations when you're thinking about forming an investment thesis that you know cons- is considerate of what the new urban environment is going to look like. Exactly. Really interesting stuff. We love cool stats, you know, the social currency stuff. So now you can go tell your friends how long it takes to commute. But my big takeaway from this is that a third of Canadians want a commute no longer than 15 minutes. Now, imagine a life like that, a life without commuting. Yeah, I think um, it it would be, you know, if if you could see a centralization of more of these critical goods and services, all the basic services that you need for living. And you hear about this a lot in um, urban, uh, urban urban economic philosophy. Jane Jacobs talks a lot about this stuff a lot where n- you're no more than a 15 minute walk or bike ride fr- away from every resident. Planners call this the 15 minute city. And we're, I'm probably going to get called or we're probably going to get called, uh, you know, what do they call it? Uh, WEF. There's a World Economic Forum, like shills. There's a bunch of conspiracy stuff forming around this stuff. People calling me a central bank shill lately on, uh, on TikTok for saying that, uh, the net negative or that the Canada's net, uh, net interest rate isn't as bad as some of the other Commonwealth countries. Just hilarious what's going on with, with this. Uh, it's, it's tough. Uh, thankless work, I suppose, trying to trying to share information. Anyway, um, the term 15-minute city is not a new one. It was coined back in 2016 by Carlos Moreno, an associate pr- uh, professor at Sorbonne University Business School in Paris, France. 
So in a 2022 TED Talk given by Moreno, he outlines the idea of the 15-minute city, which boils down to giving area inhabitants access to essential services they need to live, to learn, and to thrive within their immediate vicinity. He goes on to say, cities need to breathe, and we live in unbreathable cities, cities with stress that are totally unsustainable. We need to transform our mobilities. We need to change our urban lifestyles. Yeah, so the idea is uh, more life and more local. Yeah, and, and all in all, I think it's a great concept, and I'd like to see more of it. You know, I've lived in cities most of my adult life, spent time in cities in Europe and at both times, you know, in Vancouver and Toronto, and I can tell you right now, the neighborhoods with more access to more stuff like cafes, restaurants, walking clinics, supermarkets, they are the more desirable places to live because your quality of life goes up. You can walk to all of those things I just mentioned. It is interesting, you know, spending a lot of time in, in Switzerland where they geographically were limited, but also it's such an old uh you know, culture. So where their built form environment was built before, you know, cars as an example, or before mass railway. And so you saw a lot of these, we call it micro urban, so small urban areas. And I would say a lot of these older, you know, Swiss villages, they're dense and they are like 15 minute cities very much. You kind of, you know, you kind of got to go far if you need like your hardware store or whatever, but most of the things that you would need just to survive are, are there. And the, you know, the idea is about to take that to the suburbs and make smaller communities like this town in Poland, as an example. The small sleepy town of Plzeu in Wilkspolska has recently been gaining recognition. You're smirking. Did you try and tee me up to have a uh, mispronunciation? On I that can't one? believe you pronounced that so well. I've I've been trying for the last ten minutes. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, didn't, off I to certainly you. didn't, but I just I delivered it with confidence. Um, <laughs> but it's been gaining recognition worldwide as the first 15 minute city in Poland. The picturesque town has uh, has joined an illustrious group of heavyweights, including Amsterdam, Paris, Vienna, Budapest, Rome, Copenhagen, Stockholm, and Milan, in implementing the idea of 15-minute city, in which everything people need for their lives is within 15 minutes by foot, on, on foot, by bike, or on public transport. So, I mean, we're seeing it happen there already, but cities like Amsterdam, Paris, Vienna, and so on are much more suited to that and are kind of already doing, they're just tweaking things like zoning and adding more bike lanes. I mean, Dan, you said this yourself, it almost exists there already because a lot of these cities and, and even smaller towns in Europe were built far before cars ruled the world. And you can see that just if you look at, you know, aerial shots of towns in the Midwest of America and Canada and the highway systems that run through that versus a aerial shot of a um, any European city. I mean, I think it makes sense. Does the idea work as well in Canada with our seasonal weather and our massive landmass? Um, you know, the cities that are being described are so much smaller and, and overall obviously don't get as cold. So, you know, I'm interested to explore this and see where it goes. I think, you know, it is interesting because you, you – you think about like the progression that we made as a society in things like, um, you know, gathering of natural resources or agriculture, as an example, like advances of modern society and whether or not they make it to the point where you can kind of centralize the living space. So you can put all of the people into a, a, you know, a city where they live and then they consume goods that are produced very much on the outside of those cities. So it's not so much like 
production happens there. I guess the question becomes like, what happens to like jobs and stuff like that? Like, oh, do we, you can't just live in like a primarily service-based economy. Anyway, the, the idea started gaining traction here in Canada. Um, and he, this is an excerpt from a global news article titled 15 minute cities, what they are and why people are, why some people are lashing out against them. But these are the Uh-oh. people who, who, who might call us, uh, World Economic Forum shills for, for even talking about this on an episode. We are strictly just discussing this yeah. for saying, <laughs> be nice to t- Tiff Macklem. Um, but, but as the idea picks up esteem in Canada, it's also sparked controversy. Mildly concerned citizens argue that 15-minute cities will increase isolation, while more zealous dissenters have imagined scenarios where citizens' movement is monitored through surveillance or that people are fined for leaving their neighborhoods. While these ideas which have and I think that there was like, there was a statement kind of like where you had to like do an application to like leave your kind of like 15 minute city zone or something. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not familiar enough with like really the, the lore of this, this whole argument, but let's it's, see, it's yeah, funny to watch. No, it's just funny to watch. Well, yeah, for sure. For so sure. Anyway. We're keeping the lore out of it here. We're not making this political. This is just a very interesting concept that yeah, you will be sharing about. Um, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think you can, you can be like, uh, you know, we can healthily discuss whether or not like it's actually practical or even possible to do this. Um, exactly. And, and thing. leave the tinfoil in the drawer. Yeah. So some of these ideas have been just debunked or, you know, considered to be conspiracy theories. Um, but a lot of gained traction overseas. Edmonton City Council is the latest subject of the bat- backlash, despite never saying they had a plan to limit travel between neighborhoods and clarifying that they're simply interested in creating more walkable neighborhoods. It hasn't stopped people from protesting the idea of spreading misinformation. So there we go. <laughs> Do we that, was, that was that uh, was written from an or that was read from an article by the way <laughs> but yes. i don't know man i mean like it's not to me it's like it, it is what it is right i mean the reality is it it doesn't even have to be a cl- political conversation it at the end of the day urban economics ultimately it's a function of capitalism if there are enough people to consume these things and if that ends up being a, a, a more efficient distribution of the resource of places to live right of the the resource of land then and and it allows people to live more affordably as an example reduce their cost of living because they can walk to you know the grocery store they don't need a car or whatever it may not be like the kind of uh, type of life that i want or that you want um but if it ends up being uh you know good capitalistic mechanism it's going to to get there it doesn't have to be a political thing the free market like we can we can blame everything that we want on politicians at the end of the day but the reality is the free market really decides what happens here and and that's you know that's how how the capitalistic economy works and so urban economics are a part of that and i think that in the fullness of time i would, wouldn't surprise me if we get more to that as we get more into specialization and division of labor you start to see you know centralization of living places um more urbanization in that respect and then more of the you know uh goods production for the for that society happening on the outskirts and like this happened in in you know the original agricultural societies as well like it's not a new phenomena i think the bigger question is are humans meant to live in tribes of hundreds and f- 150 thousands like um uh you all know harari's book on this uh sapiens is like a really interesting look at like the evolution from like basically like homo sapiens to agricultural society to like urbanized society and like whether or not you know that social structure was actually like what we were supposed to. So there's a lot of interesting thought experiments on it. None of which I like actually am qualified enough to talk about. And I don't really actually have an opinion on it, but like, those are just my kind of like major thoughts there. For sure. And I mean, just to add to some of that, it's so funny because people, you know, just like NIMBYism, there's going to be backlash anytime there's change proposed, but 
if you if you look at it, one, this has been happening in Europe since you know Europe was built, since we know your modern Europe as it is today. But it's also been happening under our noses. I mean, if you look in Toronto, there's Liberty Village. There's City Place, there's a St. Lawrence Market, there's Young and Eglinton, there's all these different corridors that are already kind of taking shape that you don't really need to leave that area other than for maybe work or travel. So it's already happening. And what do you think when we do a master planned community? What do you think that means? That's that's basically this wrapped up in a different package with a yeah. different name on it. Well, that's so, a capitalistic name, I think, right? Like, And I think politicians have this weird way of like, packaging things in sometimes like these like kind of creepy little ways that like rub people the wrong way and so it gets backlash like honestly like and so in in a lot of cases you can like capitalism tends to be able to deliver uh things relatively efficiently without a lot of pushback because it's you know market consensus like people vote more with their dollars than they do with their votes like we have like the lowest polling numbers we've ever had history like you make political decisions every day with how you spend your money you know, so I think it's just it's interesting from my perspective. Love it. Let's keep talking about money. Let's close that segment off and keep going here. Now, Dan, we all know what ROI stands for, right? Yeah. Return on investment. OK, well, how about ROE? A return on equity. This one's been floating around a bit too. I wonder if you can get it. ROT. Rot. Return on time. I'm going to There we go. There we go. Well, get ready for it. All right. I've got a new one. It's groundbreaking stuff here. R-O-R. RAR. That is return on roof. Wow. Groundbreaking stuff. I love new return metrics. I thought you might. And, and, and no, I don't mean like, hey, we just got new shingles on the duplex and what's the ROI on that? I mean, let's talk about how you can legitimately make money from your roof by renting it. And no, not to tenants as or people, but to antennas. So the next time you're out driving around... You mean antennas? Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> the next time you're out driving around, I want you to take a look at any of the medium size buildings. There usually be like a multifamily, anywhere from like a six to 20 story building. And look at the roof. That roof will likely have... A whole bunch of antennas, especially if it's a bit more of a standalone building in a neighborhood. There's this one building I used to live by, and I swear they must have had 50 or 60 antennas on that rooftop. And it was the one larger kind of missing middle type building in a very residential neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, you see this a lot in big cities as well. Like um, you see these uh, communications masts, I think they're called on a lot of like skyscrapers. I think when like One World Trade was built, like that whole spire on the top, there's like a big communications mast. I mean, um, the rooftop cell site leases have become a highly sought after commodity, actually, both for property owners and for cellular providers alike. Why is that? Because rooftops, by their very nature, make for an ideal location for cellular tower and microcell installations. Rooftops are typically free from interference and without any walls or structures getting in the way. And the wireless signal, signals that they deliver tend to allow our latest smart devices to operate faster and more reliably since there's a very small risk of signal deterioration. Now, in the past, if a cellular provider needed to expand the coverage of their network, they would simply construct a new cell tower. But due to the crowded nature and congested urban and suburban areas we find ourselves in, constructing a new cell tower just isn't possible because it requires at least 300 square feet of unoccupied land. And that just doesn't really exist anymore. So that is not the easiest solution. 
rooftop antenna site leases are a great uh, are great in that property owners can now generate income from a portion of that property that was otherwise not leasable and, and kind of just dead space. However, it can also be problematic as the rooftop protects the rest of your property from the elements and the roof on the top antenna site leases tend to be, you know, they tend to increase wear and tear. You'll have, you'll have random people, contractors up there working on them and there is a little bit of a risk, but if the return makes sense, it, it might be worth it. Dan, let's, let's keep exploring here. Yeah. So, you know, in most cases they're going to drill something into the roof, right? So this could break the, um, building envelope like or the seal right and most property owners or property owners typically don't know that the installation different uh, installation options are available simply because it's not something that most property owners have experience with and so they kind of just leave it in the hands of the installer additionally most wireless carriers and cell tower companies use contractors to perform all the work on their own this means that the tenant rarely if ever physically visits the rooftop wireless site so the cell tower contractors are directed to perform maintenance work quickly and within budget so there is some risk there now obviously this is a much bigger business in the u.s because well there are way more people way more buildings that fit the requirements and way more companies providing cellular data that need antennas but we were able to pull some great info from a canadian company called antennamanagement.com So let's look at how much a cell tower lease is actually worth. Well, here in Canada, a typical cell tower can gross $3 million per year by our friends at Rogers, Telus, and Bell. A fair rent compensation, the owner uh, 1% to 2% of the annual revenue generated by that tower, which usually equates to about $30,000 annually. So a cell tower lease buyout runs about $250,000. Um, now again, these are different across the province, but you know, an extra 30 K on a, you know, medium multifamily 24 unit building or so an extra 30 K to rent at the roof. Hmm, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, not really. And I mean, you know, I've seen people do similar things. We, you know, we mentioned solar. My brother actually just installed solar on his roof. Um, and then also like even just like other alternative sources of income, like, you know, I have a, a property that has some acreage and has a cabin at the back. And I've been thinking like, oh, it's already a triplex. Like maybe we should just rent the cabin out at the back and, you know, get juice some income up. And it kind of gets into that question of whether or not those are efficient sources of income for future, for scale purposes, right? Whether or not a lender will look at them properly. And you, you and I can discuss that in a minute, but, um, um, you know, you can go check that website that you mentioned if you're a property owner who, you know, if you want to learn how to negotiate lease and terms, if you're a building manager to understand what you should allow, um, understand all the equ- equipment that goes into these cell towers and whatever. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, if you're interested, like Canada has some great programs for that for solar as well. It's not as lucrative, like as maybe a money-making venture as it was when those programs first came out. Um, like in Ontario, we had the FIT uh, feed-in tariff program. So FIT 1 and FIT 2, like the, the rates that you could sell electricity back back to the grid were like obscene. Like it was just like, it was almost a little Ponzi scheme. You would be creating power on you from your roof with solar panels, selling it to the grid at, at three or four times what, and then buying it back from them at three or times less, three or four times less. Yeah. And so, but one of the things that that created was like, there was a lot of inflation or escalation in the costs of electricity over the years. I think there was probably 10, 15, 10, it was probably over 10 years ago when fit, happen for the first time maybe 15 now actually so fit is feed in tariff that's what it stands for and there's phase there, now it's basically like the the 
capital incentive, the money that you get paid to sell electricity from solar, rooftop solar, isn't doesn't make it an exceptionally good um, income stream. But but what you're starting to see a lot of people doing is called net metering. So they'll actually put a solar panel on their roof and they'll consume that electricity within the, their property, um, and it sort of offsets their their cost. Uh, so it worked, you know. And then you can start converting things to electric. So you can convert your heat system to electric. And now you're starting to consume a lot of that electricity. Um, the interesting part is, you know, like my, when my brother did it, I think he got, there was like a, a loan that the Canadian government will give you uh, originally. I think it's a, an interest-free loan. And then there's also a grant that you can get. Um, so there are incentives in place to, I mean, if you're borrowing money at 0% to get solar panels on your roof, like to basically put a CapEx on into your property, I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. So, you know, maybe just do some Googling on that. I know he said it was a lot of work to do, like, and as it always is with these kind of grant and loan applications with the government, but probably probably worth it at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, as we're seeing technology advance with battery walls, we're hearing about Tesla solar shingles eventually, you know, that it seems like they've kind of stopped progressing on stuff like that since their stock price kind of took a poop. But, um, but I think, you know, uh, the reality is that there's cool innovation happening and I think that's only going to be, uh, you know, we're going to only see more of that moving forward. And the last piece, and I'll, I'll say this before we jump into whether or not you can actually use these pieces of income for underwriting. Um, cause that's the big challenge here. Like thinking is like renting out a garage as well, right? Like we've talked about that on, on other properties and some of the landlords that I work with. Uh, especially in the city are able to rent out par- parking spots for obscene amounts of money as an example. Um, but the, you know, the, the final pieces on the solar element is eventually we'll, I think we'll get to a point where it's efficient enough to start developing off grid. And so watch that technology space to see if there's solutions to maybe actually start solving Canada's affordable housing crisis with like off grid potential, you know, you can start unlocking a lot of land now that you don't have to depend on proximity to the electrical system. So you heard it here first, folks. Dan is starting a commune that will be powered by solar to single-handedly battle the housing crisis. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, you brought, you've brought some really good- 15-minute commune. <laughs> oh, wow. Ties it all together. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, quick piece on the solar. You know, from the research I did, it's definitely not the money maker it used to be. I remember when that first came out, I had a friend that was in the business and he was making a killing selling to panels to large industrial flat roof buildings, right? Like, you know, you see those warehouses that are a million square feet. Well, they they would go and put a ton of panels on top of there. But I feel yeah, just like-, like lease- like they would like lease the roof and then generate the income kind of thing. Like it was like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know some guys who did that on like Walmarts as well. Yeah. Some, yeah, some big, I mean, big developers in Toronto. You kill, you'd kill it. I mean, and they did kill it back then, but just like with a lot of things, right. They, they've come and gone. Um, and, and I don't think there's as much of a money making opportunity there as, as just to, you know, reduce your carbon footprint um, and, and, you know, maybe harvest a bit of your own uh, power. Right. I think Ma- also the lifetime, like the uh, economic life of solar panels is getting better and like the quality of them is getting better so they're not as expensive for what they produce so like the ROI on them is improving you know kind of it did bottom out a little bit but also they last longer so you know before it was like oh yeah they'll pay for themselves in 10 years and then you get an extra 15 years out of them and now it's like oh yeah you get you know 15 years uh, or sorry you'll get you'll get 30 or 40 years out of them so the economic life could you know kind of kind of also be a benefit factor there so I guess the question is Nick like 
these things are they are these things that I, when I'm if I'm an investor and I'm like trying to you know juice my return a little bit on one of my existing properties because I'm like oh I want to I know I listened to the Canadian Real Estate Investor podcast and I heard that you got to increase if your cash flow if you or you got to increase your income if you want to go and increase your qualifying amount or your borrowing power for the next property are these things that I can start factoring in like if I'm renting out garages and you know Airbnb being a pro- thing at the back of a property or run have a I have a cell tower and I have a solar panels on my roof like is it the bank gonna look at me and be like, "Yes, I love you. That's awesome. Good, mo- you're great at making money. Go lever up, baby." The unfortunately, the bank likely won't have that reaction. You and I probably would. Um, you're right, and Dan, that, that's a great point. You know, some of this stuff is is not respected as it should be um, by lenders, and and that's not just lenders that that like they're you know the big banks that we're talking about. This goes all the way down to local credit unions that might have a hard time funding some of this kind of stuff. It gets very deal subjective, um, but and and without disclosing too much information, you know, there's a deal we're working on right now that we're having to really hard time finding funding and it has to do with the zoning and and the method it's being purchased in and whatnot but you know this property has it's over an acre it's got a single family home on it that is going to rent for a good amount of money it's got a large kind of contractor's garage stored facility that can also be rented out for quite a bit of money and it's got a cell tower that's paying 550 dollars a month to the owner of that property plus you've got extra outdoor space that you could literally be you know storing boats or sea or or campers or whatever it may be so i'm looking at this property as an investor thinking wow there are literally like five ways to make money off of this and you and i love looking at every single detail and trying to figure out how much juice we can squeeze out of out of every property in you know in the best way possible but lenders unfortunately don't look at it the same way so this is when private mortgages and and vtbs can can really come into play when you're working on unique deals like this that make sense to investors but are harder to get underwritten at any of the traditional and even some non-traditional lenders yeah so i think it's like non-traditional income non-traditional lenders right or like traditional lenders like traditional stuff so that's your takeaway there. I, I don't have much more to add to that, but I think it was fun. Like it's always fun to think about this stuff, but it's it's never as easy as it sounds on paper. It's like, oh yeah, just go make a ton of money putting solar panels on your roof, and then and then, then what? And then that's where it's kind of like, oh, now you know the bank won't recognize that as income, or they're going to take fifty percent of it, or they're going to count it as business income, you know, and take an average of X amount of years or whatever. And now you're just complicating your underwriting. You would have been better off putting that time and energy maybe into just doing your job. Right. And going and making more money doing what you're actually like, what you actually do for a living. So those are my thoughts. Love it. Thanks, Dan. Okay, guys, we had a great episode today. We talk about ROR, which is rent. Oh, sorry. Return on roof. So renting your roof out. The RAR, that's the newest return metric created on this show. Uh, we did a great little segment on 15 minute cities and a nice juicy 11.2 cap. Uh, duplex in Dartmouth. So hope you got a ton of value out of the show. If you want us to cover anything specifically, reach out and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317 Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a 
member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.